Hello, this is Ted Floyd. I am the editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine, and I've been out birding for much of the past week. This is my favorite time of the year with the nesting season in high gear. It's also my favorite time of the year because I get to interact so extensively right now with young birders at ABA Teen Birding Camps, in connection with the ABA Young Birder of the Year program, and simply out in the field enjoying birds and nature together. This is also the time of the year when the ABA kicks into its nesting season appeal, an urgent mid-year campaign to raise money for all our young birder programs, as well as the many public services like this podcast, which require funding beyond basic memberships. To contribute to the nesting season appeal, please donate online at aba.org give or call us at 800 850 2473 and give what you can. Programming at the ABA is highly cost efficient and your donation will go directly to resources for young birders and the whole community of people who care about birds and birding. Again, that website is aba.org give and the phone number is 800-850-2473. Thank you for ensuring a bright future for birds and for birders And good birding to all of you. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. I know we focus mostly on birds of the ABA area, the U.S. and Canada here, and that obviously makes sense. But every once in a while I come across a story, an article that's about birds elsewhere that's just so good or so interesting that I want to talk about it in this space just from the perspective of sharing really cool bird stuff. And this is one of those, it comes from Ed Young, who is one of the world's great science writers. It was published in The Atlantic, so anytime he turns his mind towards birds, you're going to get something good out of it. It's about Australian birds, primarily, uh, and whether birds can taste sweet things. Here's a little background. Mammals, like humans, have two genes that enable a taste receptor that recognizes sugar molecules, and that allows us to taste things that are sweet and recognize them as sweet. But in primarily meat-eating animals, this receptor doesn't work. This makes evolutionary sense, right? Sugar is a high-energy food, so it makes sense that we as omnivores and other omnivores can recognize it, but for cats or seals and dolphins or whatnot, animals that eat meat almost or entirely exclusively They don't need it. And as evolution doesn't like things that you don't need, they end up losing it. So for a long time, it was thought this happened to the small predator dinosaurs that were the ancestors of birds because they also lack this gene that enables sweet receptors. But Nate, you might be saying into the air where I cannot hear you. What about hummingbirds? They obviously like sweet stuff. I don't put this feeder up for nothing. It's a great point. They like all birds, do not have this gene that mammals have, but evolution provided a workaround. They transformed a different receptor, one that usually detects savory foods, into a sugar receptor. So savory things and sweet things more or less taste the same to hummingbirds. This is from research done by Maud Baldwin and her team. So with this research in mind, Baldwin's team started looking at other nectar-specialized birds, in particular, Australia's honey eaters. And they found that they also have a version of this gene that turns sweet things into savory things. And more, 
lots of passerins actually have this ability too. Even if they don't eat a lot of sweet items, which I guess is something that people who leave out jelly for Orioles and Tanagers probably know very well. But here's the kicker. It's a different gene. So this ability to recognize sweet foods evolved twice in birds in slightly different ways. And anyway, it turns out that there were 16 mutations along the line that turned that savory receptor into a sweet receptor. It's wild stuff. Evolution is this messy, convoluted, frequently dead-ending path to these adaptations that allow radiation in spectacular groups of birds, like hummingbirds, honeycreepers. Anyway, it's, it's really cool stuff. Read the Ed Young piece in the show notes. He does a great job of kind of distilling the science into a way that lay people can understand. He explains it way better than me. On the show this week, let's continue this conversation about spectacular tropical birds, but shift to parrots. And how about we shift even more to talk about parrots in urbanized landscapes? Stephen Pruitt-Jones is the editor of a comprehensive new book about naturalized parrots, where they are, how they're doing, what they do. He joins me to talk all about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first week of August 2021. I'm Greg Nee, stepping in for Nate. No first to report this week, but the ongoing trend of southern birds moving northward continues with species beyond roseate spoonbill for a change. August is a good time for extra-liminal whistling ducks, and a fulvis in Jefferson County, Kentucky is the fourth for that state. And a black-bellied whistling duck near Warwick, Rhode Island is only the second there. Pacific golden plovers are having a moment, and a long-staying bird in Dare County, North Carolina is that state's third, as is an individual in Leon County, Florida. Out west, a sandwich turn in Marin, California is only that state's third or fourth record, and brown boobies have begun their late summer movement with a bird recently photographed near Mount Desert Rock in Maine. Well, that's all we have for you this week. For the entire roundup, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org rba. You can also get information as soon as it happens on our ABA Rarity Sharing Facebook group, or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Parrots and parakeets are among the most spectacular and diverse birds on the planet, and they're also somewhat surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, among the most adaptable. Urban parrots have made their way into dozens of places around the world. Many cities, they're a regular feature of city and suburban landscapes. That interesting dynamic and the many ways it manifests is the subject of a new book from Princeton University Press, Naturalized Parrots of the World, Distribution, Ecology, and Impacts of the World's Most Colorful Colonizers. It is edited by Dr. Stephen Pruitt-Jones of the University of Chicago. He is with me today. Welcome, Steve. How are you? Uh, fine, thank you. It's uh, great to be on the, on the show. Did you come to this work with an interest in urban ecology or an interest in parrots specifically? Maybe that's sort of a chicken and an egg question or parrot and an egg question. What, what, what was your interest in, in talking about naturalized parrots, exotic parrots? Uh, it's a bit both, it's both historic and uh, current. Since coming to the University of Chicago in 1988, I've been keeping track of the uh, monk parakeet population in Chicago, and Chicago is kind of famous for yeah, ha- yeah. having monk parakeets. And uh, so I've been monitoring them, uh, their population, and 
becoming more and more interested in other species of naturalized, introduced and naturalized species of parrots in the United States. And so that research program in my lab has gotten larger and involved more people and more extensive. And my ultimate goal is to write a book about the naturalized parrots in the United States. And Mm -hmm. in the process of organizing for that, I realized that it was also a problem worldwide, and the large group of researchers around the world had not yet sort of put together a, a cohesive, coherent statement about the situation worldwide. And so I really wanted to start with the worldwide situation and then focus just on the United States. Yeah, so what, what sort of is the situation of parrots? Um, you sort of called it a, a problem. Do they have a like a negative effect on native wildlife, or are they sort of more innocuous? Or on the surface, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, instead of saying the problem <laughs> wor- worldwide, I should have said the situation. Situation, because, right, yeah. yeah. More value neutral. <laughs> yeah, the vast majority of species uh, do not have a, a negative impact, and mm-hmm. the few, we can talk about that this yeah, later, yeah, yeah. but the, the few negative impacts are limited to just one or two species. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, parrots are obviously incredibly diverse. Of the nearly 400 species of, of citizens in the world, a remarkable 60 of them have been documented with naturalized populations in some part of the world which where they are not native, which is a figure that actually sort of surprised me. Are there commonalities among these particular 60-some species that make them, among all the parrots, sort of especially flexible in these sort of urban new situations? Uh, yes, there are, but I'd like to even uh, I'd like to amaze you with even some uh, <laughs> addition, <it>. yeah. <laughs> additional numbers. So, yeah, approximately depending on the taxonomy that right, you right, right. use, approximately four hundred species. But of those, approximately actually more than three hundred have been transported around the world through Jeez. the pet trade and yeah. sold, sold. So, and of those three hundred that have been and actually, of those 300, about 280 have been brought to the United States. <laughs> so approximately 300 species of parrots, three quarters of all species of parrots have been transported out of their native range, brought to a new habitat. Of those 300, approximately 250 have been recorded in the wild in those new habitats. Now, being recorded in the wild, the birds right. could have escaped or the birds could have been released or something happened, but the birds were seen in the wild in their new habitat, so or in the new habitat. Mm-hmm. And, and of those um, 250 or so, about 125 are regularly seen now in some new habitat. And of those, as you said, 60 are now naturalized, and we actually now known of of an additional 11. Uh, (laughs) So the figure that I publishing actually in a paper separate from the book is that there are, we now have good evidence that there's 71 of the approximate 400 species of parrots that are breeding or are completely naturalized in a new country, at least one new country. And, And the countries or territories around the world, it's a total of 138 countries or territories that have at least one species of breeding or naturalized parrot now. Yeah, that's like a fifth of the parrot species in the world are now living somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, so other than the finches, like Gouldian finches or yeah. zebra finches, I, I actually would really like to know whether finches as a group of birds or parrots as a group of birds are the most heavily 
traded uh, birds in the world. It's it's one of those two groups, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and parrots live so long too, so it's kind of hard to establish. I imagine, you know, whether an individual bird is just like one or two, especially long-lived individuals that sort of give the impression of a naturalized population or an actual, you know, breeding population, putting out new chicks and, and regenerating their population from generation to generation. I imagine that's kind of difficult to, to tell. Uh, it's very difficult. It's, it's difficult uh, in practical terms of mm-hmm. actually seeing birds in the field. And it's also difficult because researchers around the world don't necessarily agree on the terminology that right. we use, right? So these birds are introduced. You could call them alien species. You could call them foreign uh, species. But whether you call them invasive species is depends upon your definition of it's that. Of and theory, then, yeah. yeah, and even if you call them, ha- whether you call them naturalized depends upon how you define that term. Yeah, how how do you use those terms? How do you personally use those terms? Like naturalized seems somewhat different than invasive. Naturalized implies yes. maybe that you know they are there, there is an actual population here that is breeding and reproducing in such a way that the population seems fairly stable. That's exactly how I use it. So in yeah. the book, we define naturalized as an in- introduced species, meaning a species introduced into a new area, not native there that has established a self-sustaining breeding population. And I, although I really like that definition, it's actually somewhat difficult to use in practice because <laughs> what does self-sustaining mean? <laughs> right, right. And so, yeah. some, some authors say that the population has to be present for at least 10 years at, to make their definition. And actually, I believe that it's the American Birding Association mm-hmm uses the definition that the population has to be breeding but can't be dependent upon humans for their stable population existence, if that makes sense. Right, and even that is sort of, uh, I don't know, how, how do you incorporate, say, bird feeders into that or any sort of urban landscape I, where the birds are using, like monk parakeets in Chicago, for instance, that are using the you know power line poles as sort of the structure on which to build their nests. Is that self-sustaining? It's hard to say. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. It is hard to say. And uh, it, uh, you know, I, I, although I have published a lot on semantic issues, uh, <laughs> those, those aren't, those aren't very, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're a bit technical and you have to deal with them. But um, so introduced seems to be easy to define. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's a very, I think the term naturalized is a very useful term to basically mean a bird a species that's breeding in a new area or established a self-sustaining population, whatever that means. Whatever that means. You, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the two two species that seem to be the most uh, prolific in uh, in these settings uh, are monk parakeet of uh, temperate South America and rose ring parakeet of tropical Asia. And on the surface, those do not necessarily seem like similar sorts of places, but these two birds seem to be able to live in these urbanized environments better than a lot of other species? Is there something about them that is, you know, makes them particularly, you know, able to do that? Uh, yes. Um, well, let me back up. I guess yeah. I, re- I realize I hadn't answered your <laughs> we, earlier, we got on a, we got on a your earlier <laughs> question about, um, is there something about the species that 
uh, have succeeded that they have in common? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. Um, so if you look at the 400 species of parrots around the world, those that are of medium size do better Hmm. in new habitats. So the smallest species and the largest species tend not to be as successful as those of medium size. Those species with a more flexible and a broad diet do much better in new habitats. Um, Those species that have the least specific nesting requirements also Mm -hmm. do better like a very large macaw that needs a very large cavity in a tree with a dead limb isn't going to survive well except where there are palm trees like in florida or southern california so those species that have either the most general or adaptable or flexible uh, niche requirements um, are the species that do the best Now, rose-ringed parakeets and monk parakeets are, as you said, they are the most uh, successful and the most widely distributed naturalized parrots in the world. Um, I just want to clarify that statement a little bit because it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So so rose-ringed parakeets are the most widely distributed naturalized parrots in that they are found in the most number of countries in the world. But the monk parakeet is actually found in more, in, in other words, if you add up all of the space, okay, the, yeah. the area, miles, yeah, we, yeah, we call it yeah. the, we call it the area of occupancy. The uh-huh. monk parakeets are actually distributed in a, an area almost twice as big as rose-ringed uh, parakeets mm. are. But returning back to your original question is why are they so successful? I think, and I, I haven't, this is not a, an answer based on a statistical analysis of life history, but my impression is that rose rings are successful in part because they are one of the species that has been traded for the longest in human Mm. societies. And that species is also sort of famous because we actually have good documented records that that was the first species of parrot for which we have documented evidence that it was traded and carried out of its native range. So hmm. there's written records of Alexander the Great bringing it from the, the African subspecies up to hmm. Greece. Um, so it's been traded for basically two, the last 2,000 years, and it's been traded around the world and transported. So I believe that rosering parakeets are so widely distributed because it meets those life history and ecology Yeah. Um, traits, but it's also been in the pet trade for the longest period of time. But monk, par- but monk parakeets, I believe, are successful for a different reason. Oh yeah, and I believe they are so, so successful. First of all, because of the United States pet trade, and hmm. they were in their native range. They are regarded as an agricultural pest, and so they yeah. were either widely caught or widely. Um, killed. And so hundreds and millions of monk parakeets have been transported to the United States. They were a very cheap parrot, and so many people bought them. And once they were in the new area, if they get out into the wilds, they are so successful because one, they build their own nest, and two, they have the most flexible diet of any Mm. species of parakeet that we know. 
Huh. It's almost like the monk parakeet is kind of a classic American immigration story. <laughs> you persecuted in their homeland and then they come to America and proliferate. It absolutely <laughs> is. It, it was it was very pre-adapted to success here, yeah. put it that way. Yeah. And I, I do recall seeing rose ring parakeets in uh, urban environments, even in South Asia, uh, in their native range. So they they, you know, it makes sense that they would make it in a similar sort of habitat here in Europe and North America, though, you know, the temperature is obviously a real uh, issue. You know, parrots are this iconic tropical species, so it's kind of odd that they make it, in, make it work in these sort of decidedly temperate locations. Uh, it, it's really fascinating, but, and your question highlights several really interesting points. The, the first is, um, you mentioned that uh, rose-ring parakeets are becoming native in urban habitats in, in um, parts of Asia. That is certainly correct, and that's a, a related but separate issue we call species becoming urbanized, where a species in its native range is becoming really common in urban and suburban habitats. And that is very true in Australia, where wild native parrots are now flocking and moving and thriving in cities and becoming extremely common in cities, much more common than they would ever be in um, the wild. Um, Your question also is interesting because there are two subspecies of rose-ringed parakeets, one in Africa and one in India. And there have been some really elegant genetic studies that have shown that the most successful populations in Europe have all stemmed from the India subspecies. And that's interesting because it's the India subspecies that is more more adapted or better adapted to colder climates than Hmm. is the African subspecies. So people have hypothesized that for whatever the genetic basis is of cold tolerance in the Indian subspecies. Those birds have done better than the African birds. But then lastly, your question is fascinating because in one of the chapters about the parrots in in Europe by Dr. Michael Braun, he actually shows through continental Europe what the line of occurrence is above which rose-ringed parakeets cannot survive. And, and I've talked with Michael, and in, in terms of animal welfare, it's kind of a sad situation mm-hmm. because rose-ringed parakeets that live right at that upper thermal cline in northern Europe they don't often live a long life because Hmm. they lose their toes due to frostbite. So Hmm. by the time they're three or four or five years old, they they start to lose their toes. And and Michael said that, you know, that they don't live the longevity of, of birds in Northern continental Europe is nothing compared to birds in their native range because they, they can't tolerate the cold. Huh? That's really interesting. It's fascinating the extent to which some of these behaviors that we see in these urbanized parrots are sort of like shadow versions of what we see in wild birds. I'm talking specifically about a really interesting um, photo and observations in uh, the chapter about uh, rose ring parakeets in Europe. You know, we've all sort of seen the nature documentary images of the parrots coming to these uh, clay licks in uh, in the Amazon and getting their... um, getting their sodium intake or getting their mineral intake uh, from these places. But they're doing this in urban places too, but uh, like on brick 
walls, like hanging on brick walls, scraping the brick for, with their bills to get that sort of mineral intake. It's, it's sort of like this weird version of what they do in the wild. I, I completely agree. Um, yes, and and I don't, I can't remember whether it's sodium or potassium, but yeah, yeah there is some mineral that is important to them in nesting um, or in egg production, and and uh, you know how do they taste it, or what, why do they, <laughs> why, yeah, why do they fly up to a brick yeah. wall and then somehow taste it or smell it? I, it's hard, it's hard to know, but yeah, that is fascinating, and and the the way that they the areas, the cavities or the structures mm-hmm. or the holes in, in which they um, nest or for monk parakeets, the structures that they use to uh, build their nest, they those are also both interesting from a natural history perspective, but also interesting from a biology perspective. For example, the monk, we've sort of skirted around the issue of, of control, but it wouldn't surprise your listeners to know that because monk parakeets build their nests on electrical utility <laughs> structures, they are the one species that has come into the most conflict with human economic activity or mm-hmm. electrical. Um, but one of the really important questions related to that, would, if you if we could figure out how to study it, I would mm-hmm. love to have somebody study this, which is, does a bird born in a nest that is built on a electrical utility structure, is that bird then more imprinted to build its future yeah. nest on a, a, a human-made object? Or is there is there nest site imprinting is what I'm yeah. trying cool. to suggest. And we don't yet know for monk parakeets, but it might be really important in the management or mitigation of any problems. So for example, in Florida, I think if I remember correctly, 75% of all of the nests are in man-made structures, whereas in Illinois, it's around 45 to 50%. So those differences, you know, 50 versus 75 may seem um, either large or small, but it's really significant in the impact, potential impact that that species may have on electrical uh, generation or, you know, the the utility industry uh-huh. yeah is there a species of naturalized parrot that you find to be like re- their success to be really surprising maybe the least likely species on the surface to take to new environments that actually has made a go of it i'm always i guess i'm more surprised by the species that you don't see hmm. um in the wild so um, I guess I, um, I'll answer that in two ways. So first, sure. uh, what surprises me initially is when we were tabulating all of the data from all of the species and making all of the large tables for the book, et cetera, one thing that really struck me was that you would expect that there to be a correlation between the number of birds imported through the pet trade mm-hmm. and the number of birds that are eventually seen in the wild and eventually naturalized. Now, the two species for which that hypothesis works is the monk parakeet and the rose-ringed parakeet. So more monk parakeets were imported into the United States than any other species of parrot, and more monk parakeets are seen in the wild in the United States than any other species of parrot. But it doesn't work for all species. So the African gray parrot, or what's Mm -hmm. now called the gray parrot, that's the most heavily trafficked parrot in the world. There are more gray parrots transported around the world than any other species of parrot. Despite that, the gray parrot has never 
once, as far as I know, has never established a naturalized population in any country. Hmm. So they're still only seen breeding in the wild. It's also the case that very, very few African or gray parrots are ever seen in the wild. Now that yeah. may be because if you buy a gray parrot for lots of money, you you take you know you're more careful with it. But it also may be that they don't do as well in novel or unusual new habitats like monks or like rose rings. So the first thing that was surprising to me was that um, there are some species that you would expect to be naturalized mm-hmm. and they aren't. The second thing that surprised me is that I would expect the smaller species, like in the United States, I'd expect that the smaller species might be better able to find nesting sites, like like lovebirds, for example, yeah. the rosy-faced lovebirds is only is here as the United States. It's a naturalized species, but it's only found in one or two localities, whereas yeah. I but it's been released, it's been seen in the wild in dozens of localities. And I would have thought that the rosy-faced lovebirds would have been able to establish itself in multiple locations, but but it hasn't. It's it's these medium to large to large mm. species that have been the most successful, which was really which has been very surprising to me. Yeah, it's really interesting because you know African gray parrot is is you know famously held up as you know one of the smartest birds. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. They've done, you know, all that research on bird cognition with African gray parrots as the subject species. And it's, yeah, it's wild that they don't, that they don't make it. Yeah, hmm. uh, I, I completely agree. Um, but yeah, virtually every group of parrots that you can think of have, have been seen in the wild in some locality. Um, the other thing it's, I guess it's not so surprising. It's it not so much it, that it's surprising, but it's just something that I would love to know is um, how um, the survivorship of the naturalized parrots compare to the survivorship mm. of the birds mm-hmm. in the wild, like the big macaws that you can see in Southern California or Florida. Are, are these birds living, uh, or sulfur-crested cockatoos, which can live you know, 60, 70, 80 years, right. are they really living 60 or 70 or 80 years you know, in the United States? Hmm. You know, We don't know because... We don't, um, other than other than a few species of where people have banded birds here, we don't have a banded population of any species of naturalized parrot in the United States other than the monk parakeet and red-crowned uh, Amazons in Southern California. Kind of maybe speaks to the idea that researchers maybe aren't as interested in these non-native species as perhaps they might be in uh, a native species that might be a conservation you know, a more urgent conservation story or issue. Um, sometimes these birds kind of fly under the radar and they don't, you know, we don't know as much about them because no one really thinks to look that closely at them. Uh, I agree. In my case in Chicago, it's a completely different answer. I, <laughs> I can guarantee you that I would have a banded population of monk parakeets <laughs> if monk parakeets in Chicago were easy to catch. But, oh, too hard. Huh? To, well, you can catch them with, uh, imagine a modified uh, butterfly net that's about 20 <laughs> feet long with a great big net, but you have to put that net up 
to the nest opening in the middle of the night. Oh, so right. you can imagine trying to walk through Chicago neighborhoods in the middle of the <laughs> night, scaring up monk parakeets out of their nests. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 your, your future would not look rosy. In other the, other uh, potential a, yes. research difficulties that are <laughs> maybe unexpected. Yeah. yeah. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier on, but is there a part of the world where presence of these parrots is potentially harmful beyond you know, maybe the, the monk parakeets and the, and the energy, the power line issue. But is there a, a place where the, these parrots are, are a problem for native species? Uh, not that we know of at the <laughs> moment. Um, that may relate to whether a species is successful or, or a group of species like parrots are successful mm-hmm. in a given area. And again, I'll bring up the um, topic of Australia because Australia has many naturalized parrots, but most of those species of naturalized parrots in Australia are actually native to Australia that happen to be transported outside of their native range and settled somewhere else in Australia. That's interesting. And so Australia is also interesting because it's the only country that parrots from another country or like South American parrots or African parrots have not succeeded Hmm. as well as they have in other areas. Parrot niche is taken. Uh, You're absolutely right. And that's the (laughs) hypothesis of the authors who wrote the um, chapter about Australia is they hypothesize that rose rings and monks and these other species probably haven't done as well in Australia because there are so many native species that the parrot niches are already filled, and hmm. um, there's not, you know, not as many opportunities for them to succeed in the same way that they have in um, North America. But the the one fascinating aspects of a parrot, well, there's many fascinating aspects of parrots. But as far as I know, and as far as the authors presented in this in the book. Uh, we don't know of any case where introduced parrots are competing with or are having a detrimental effect to other native birds in the area in which they're introduced. There are there are cases of nest displacement, so rose-ringed parakeets can displace the Eurasian nuthatch from nest boxes in Europe. So there are examples of localized competition. That's interesting that they would use the same size nest box. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is interesting. Um, but on a broad scale, if you add, you know, people talk about starlings having a huge mm-hmm. impact on native native species of birds or house sparrows, et cetera. We don't have that same discussion in uh, about parrots. It's more yeah. like in this one-off situation, they're having a negative effect. But for the most part, um, I use the term, they are a benign member of the avifaunal community in areas where they are introduced. Um, and because they are benign, it's great because, you know, they, they can survive, they can thrive and without uh, the implications of having negative right. impacts. Do you think that residents, birders, people who feed birds have sort of a different relationship with these naturalized parrots than they do with other exotic species. You know, people seem really excited about parrots in ways that are totally different from starlings or house sparrows or minas. Um, Maybe it's the ubiquity of those latter birds and sort of the novelty of the parrots. But, uh, you know, even in places like Chicago, people love the monk parakeets in a way that they don't (laughs) starlings or house sparrows or rock pigeons. 
Uh, absolutely. And there have been, uh, you know, every time a newspaper article is written here about yeah. monk parakeets or a, a television program or, or a news uh, TV program, they focus on that. And, and that, I mean, I know many people that set up bird feeders specifically in the <laughs> winter, hoping to attract uh, monk parakeets. And even in my uh, local community of, of Riverside, anytime anyone has a monk parakeet come to their feeder it, it makes the you know the facebook page from <laughs> riverside and everybody's so excited about it and then we all of the neighbors visit their feeder at a certain time of day when the monk parakeets <laughs> might come so you know I, I myself get caught up into it i love to see the parakeets i love to see their nests um they are fascinating to people that have benefited from them uh, visiting their bird feeders and people really do uh, seem to connect with um, the monk parakeets in their local group. And um, I'm keeping track of sort of the attention that parakeets uh, uh, start in the United States and the number, I think there's currently about at least a dozen different blogs or websites devoted to uh, parrots in the United States. There's at least a dozen different Facebook groups devoted to the parrots. There's one Facebook group called the Wild Parrots of Sturt, Florida. So anyone who has a you know photo or something to say about the uh, parrots in Southern Florida, they they can post there. So I don't mean to go on too long <laughs> about this issue, but a, a really important current example is in. Barcelona, Spain. And mm -hmm. right now, as we speak, the Spanish government or the Barcelona um, uh, city government is planning to, the term they use is ethically cull, which <laughs> means remove and kill 12,000 monk parakeets from the wow. city of Barcelona. Because in the last decade, the population of monk parakeets in Barcelona has gone from a few hundred to more than 40,000. Uh, monk parakeets, and um, they have been the subject of really intensive study by one of the collaborators in the in the uh, book. Um, and he has shown that the monk parakeets in Barcelona get forty percent of their daily diet or nutritional needs from handouts from humans at wow. parks. Yeah, just imagine that forty percent of a the the diet of a of a wild species of bird naturalized or not is coming from handouts from people in city parks i'm imagining someone sitting on a bench and instead of being surrounded by rock pigeons they're surrounded by monk parakeets absolutely yeah. but the reason i mentioned this in relationship to human relationships with the parrots is there's an enormous public outcry mm -hmm. to keep the government from from doing this call or this removal uh, program. And I don't know exactly where it stands at the moment, but every time I see reference to a newspaper article or a social media post about the Barcelona situation, it's usually in reference to a citizens group starting a, a signing petition or you mm -hmm. know a letter writing <laughs> campaign or a protest to the government to stop, uh, stop the call of the monk parakeet. <laughs> Uh, Naturalized Parrots of the World is the book. Stephen Pruitt-Jones is the editor. It's from Princeton University Press, which is well-known by fans of nature books. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. This is a fascinating subject. Uh, thank you very much for the interest. 
American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, you can support it by joining the ABA. Members have subscribed to great magazines. You get discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us, and the knowledge that you are helping to support birding here and abroad. Get information at aba.org slash join. No shout outs this week as I am actually in Columbia during the time when I usually put these together. So I'll do it all next week. But if you enjoy the podcast and want to leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, that helps us out too. Well, obviously five stars helps more, but I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who have asked why he remains in that position will say, I obviously love birds. That's too easy. Technical production this week is by John Lowry, who next time he's out of town has hooked me up with a producer named Lori, but he made sure to tell me he will put the podcast together if Laura can't. Additional help comes from David Hartley and especially Greg Neese. Greg, having you on was a real gala occasion. You can find us online at aba.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. So because I'm traveling, I had to park in the airport long-term lot. And let me tell you, I hope when I come back, I have no reason to say someone keyed my car. What kind, you ask? A Toyota Corolla. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.